This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, We've got a super busy show today, obviously. What a crazy week. Uh, with, with Donald Trump, it's it's amazing. Like, I didn't think uh, is Trump allowed to follow through on all his campaign promises? Like, no president ever does. So it's just so odd that he is. So uh, we'll talk obviously all about that. But I want to start here. Why are tampons and pads still taxed when Viagra and Rogaine are not? Is your erection really more than? Protecting the sacred, messy part of my womanhood is the blood stain on my jeans. More embarrassing than the thinning of your hair. Okay, we, we can we can stop there. Uh, that's uh, how are you, Slater Crusaders? America's the greatest country in the world. That's that's Ashley Judd uh, at the Women's March, part of her six-minute. Spoken word performance. Uh, uh, honest question. Would you want your daughters or your daughter to grow up and, and do that or be like that? Uh, go Google her Ashley Judd women's March speech and you can hear the whole thing. Now, maybe that's my patriarchy speaking. Um, but it is it's pretty it's pretty nasty. And it's gross. So we're going to talk a lot about the Women's March today because there's so many really fascinating themes wrapped up in this one event uh, and and movement, which is one of my points. It's not much of a movement. There was a host on CNBC who said, who wrote on Twitter, has there ever been a larger nationally coordinated protest than what's going on today? Which is a great question, right? And, and, Has there been a larger nationally coordinated protest than what's going on today? And the answer is yes. Every year at the March for Life event in Washington, D.C. Every year. So they're saying that 700,000 women showed up for the anti-Trump protest this last weekend. It was Saturday, day after the inauguration, right? 700,000 women. That's a lot. But the March for Life event has been going on every year since 1974. That's when Roe v. Wade was decided every year it brings in about 250,000 people. But since 2009, it's been bringing in about 400,000 people. And in 2013, there were 650,000 people every single year. So, I mean, that's just an answer to that question off the top of my head. Yes. The March for life event. And that's an amazing example of what we're going to talk about today. It's a perfect example. So he asks, 
if there's ever been a larger coordinated protest than what happened last weekend? And the answer isn't, well, yes, I mean, an anti-war protest, right? The Iraq war anti-war protest. Or, yes, something that has nothing to do with the topic of, of this most recent protest. The answer is yes, a protest every year that is basically the exact opposite of the protest this weekend. <laughs> right? Are you with me? It's the pretty much the exact opposite. Don't be confused. Do not be confused for a second. The women's march, the protest this last weekend, it's entirely about abortion. That's all it is. They can disguise it, pretend it's about other things, pretend it's about larger issues like women's rights, whatever. It's abortion. So here's this large gathering of people who are pro-abortion, pro-choice. But every year, there's an annual gathering of just as many women against abortion for life, for the exact opposite of what happened last week. And that's hilarious. But the media is going to pretend like this is an unprecedented event that happened last year. And I think the March for Life event is next weekend. So we'll see how many women show up for that. We'll see how much coverage that event gets. But this is what I want to talk about in this segment. I want to talk about this embrace. I don't know how to word it. I don't, I don't know how to, to encapsulate the, the, the theme, the title in one sentence. I want to talk about how, how ugly is beautiful in today's culture, how ugly is embraced, how vulgar is embraced, how what Ashley Judd de- did on stage there, and that was only 20 seconds of it, but what, what she did there is, is celebrated. And I think we need to be aware of this. So the larger story here, if we can take a half a step back, the larger story is there's no such thing as objective truth. We're told there's no such thing as right or wrong. It's all just whatever you feel like doing. Okay. So there's no such thing as objective truth. That's one of the progressives central tenets. No such thing as objective truth. Similarly, we are told beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now I want to be very clear here for the sake of our radio conversation. I'm going to make three categories because I'm wading into some dangerous territory here. So bear with me. It's important. I'm going to make three categories, beautiful, average, and ugly. Now, this is not about anyone's physical appearance. It's not what this is about. I'm not talking about physical appearance. It's about so much more than that. It's about manners and values and language and dress and posture and everything combined. So when I say beautiful, average, and ugly, I'm not talking about your looks. I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about who, who you embody. The goal in life for men and women used to be to be beautiful. Remember the theme of the year? Whatever is, it's from the Bible, Philippians. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Think about such things, all right? So focus on what is beautiful, what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And then you have the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things we need to be. These are the pinnacle of things to think about and things to become. They're beautiful. Then you have average. This is just nothing. This is, uh, Average talk, average manners, bland, neutral, lukewarm, nothing. 
neither neither beautiful nor ugly. It's just nothing. And then below that, you have ugly, which is an example of what you just heard. Now, for a long time, the goal was to be beautiful. Now, for people who didn't want to do that or for whatever reason, they decided to just settle with average and you just float on through life. You don't do anything noteworthy. You don't become anything noteworthy. You don't try to be any of the fruits of the spirit. You don't try to focus on excellent and praiseworthy things. You just sort of coast. And that's whatever. But what we're living through today is this bizarre counterculture of I don't want to be beautiful or, or the patriarchy says I must be beautiful. So out of spite, I'm going to be ugly. I'm going to be the opposite of beautiful. Right? So like, like average used to be sort of just like a laziness or whatever. But now it's like this, this purposeful drive to be ugly, to embrace nastiness, to embrace being gross, to be ugly, to look ugly, to talk ugly, to dress ugly. Now, I'm just going to, again, be clear in case you're just tuning in. I'm not talking about supermodels and overweight people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical attractiveness. attractiveness. It's everything. I want to take a break here. And after we get back, I want to give you a bunch of examples of this embracing and celebration of ugliness. But let me just wet your palate with one. Do you remember a few months ago, there was this, this whole push, and it was a Twitter thing and all the rest, to... Shout your abortion. Shout your abortion. Now, this is a perfect example of, of beautiful, average, ugly. Bringing life into the world, the creation of life, it's a miracle. It is a beautiful thing to create life, to bring life into the world, to love it, and take care of this new soul. I speaking as a father of a four-month-old. And taking care of this soul could be being a parent or adoption, right? So you can help other people become parents. That's the goal, right? That's, that's the vision of life. Now, maybe someone in the past, if they couldn't be beautiful, right? They couldn't bring life into the world or adoption. Maybe you would have an abortion and, and keep it quiet. We'll call that neutral for now, for the sake of our conversation. But today... You're supposed to be proud of your abortion. You're supposed to shout it. You're supposed to tell the world how selfish you are and, and, and how much you should be celebrated because of that. You're supposed to tell the world how much better your life is because you had an abortion. And you're supposed to encourage other people to have an abortion. Celebrate abortion. That is sick. Are you with me? That is sick. Abortion is incredibly difficult and it's emotionally painful and it lasts with you forever. You remember a couple of years ago, we had people come to the, the TV studio and on video, they, they told their abortion stories. And we have adults who had abortions decades ago telling their story, many of them for the very first time, and they're breaking down in tears. Men and women, we had some men come in who, um, who encouraged their girlfriends to have an abortion, whatever, 40 years ago, breaking down at the, the emotional pain that's caused them. But today, in a, in a, cravenly depraved and spiteful way we're supposed to celebrate abortion 
Ugly is beautiful, is our culture today. Embrace ugliness. Embrace nastiness. Embrace gross. And your language and your speech and your everything. That is messed up. And there was a lot of that at the, the Women's March this last week. And I want to give you a bunch of examples next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. listening to Mike Slater. It's Slater for Thanks for being here. So we're talking about how in light of uh, last weekend's Women's March, we're talking about how ugly is beautiful in today's culture. That's the best way I can put it. Maybe you can put it a different way, but ugly is embraced and celebrated. And again, I don't mean physical attractiveness. I don't mean supermodels. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean manners, values, language, dress, in, in a spiteful way, feminists and, and the culture setters of today embrace the worst of these and then try to spin it and make it a virtue. It's not, you know, there's, there's this movement a little bit ago about body positivity. Right? Fine. It's not about that. It's not about weight. It's about embracing ugliness. I, I'm not, I know I'm wading into dangerous territory here. Lena Dunham is, is the poster child of this, and so is Amy Schumer, but their goal is to be ugly. Lena Dunham posing in a bikini and on the front cover of a fashion magazine. She has about as much business doing that as I do playing violin in the San Diego Symphony. No business. Schumer is a foul-mouthed comedian talking about sex all the time with no humor at all. Lena Dunham takes a picture of herself on the toilet looking disgusting. And then when people are like, that's gross, she gets all high and mighty and self-righteous. Oh, yeah, but it's about body, blah, 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 blah. Like, no, no, it's gross. It's objectively gross. I'll give you an example of this from this last weekend at the Women's March. Did you see the hats that women were wearing? See the hats. People knitted what they called, and this is not a word I like to use, I'd never use, so I'm not going to use it here, even though apparently now it's an appropriate word to use on the radio and TV. Uh, but the word for female genitalia, the P word for female genitalia, they're called P hats. So they're the hats that look like vaginas. Okay, that's ugly. 
That is ugly. That is gross. Madonna gets up there and she's just she's just absurd because she's an artist and she drops the F-bomb on TV five times. Her language is gross. And it would be gross if a man did it too. It would be gross if men wore erection hats or whatever. It's just gross. Madonna talked about how many how she dreamed of blowing up the White House or whatever. Her her speech is gross. There was a speaker, I don't even know who it was, and she was wearing she was one of the official speakers, and she wore a, a shirt, and it said it had a heart and then abortion over and over all over the, the shirt. Heart abortion, love abortion. <laughs> so, so again, celebrating abortion. Their values are ugly. We have a, a feminist culture today that embraces especially on college campuses, embraces drinking and, and hooking up. But then decries the consequences of the drunk hookup culture, which are unwanted sexual experiences, right? So they celebrate a culture that leads to rape, and then they decry the rape. You, you with it? As opposed to embracing a culture of responsibility and sobriety and chastity or just general responsible behavior. So they preach irresponsibility, which is ugly, and then complain about the consequences of it. Do you see how that works? Have you seen the, it's the main symbol of the march. It's like the official symbol of the women's march was a drawing of a uterus, right? And this was all over the place. I want to be clear. This is not, um, I'm I'm talking mainstream things here, right? I'm not talking about the outliers. I'm not talking about the things that are near satanical, right? There was, there was a one poster that someone made with the Virgin Mary drawn with a vagina all over her body, right? It was, it wasn't her body. It was like, it was, so it's like, so I'm, I'm going to give the March and the organizers the benefit of the doubt that that person is just a lone nut job, even though there are plenty of those. I'm talking mainstream imagery, official speakers, and embraced slogans. So the main image iconography of the event is a uterus with the fallopian tubes, uh, and like the fallopian tube like extends and turns into a hand and 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 is flicking you off. Okay, that's ugly. Oh, it's, it's supposed to be shocking to gain awareness. No, shut up. It's ugly. Is that the awareness you want? This is the awareness you want? I, hate, I always hate that. Like, oh, you got to be shocking. in order. No, you don't. You have to be right. But anyway, so, so the mainstream imagery is a, is a uterus with a fallopian tube flicking you off. And the slogan is, bye, boy, which is from a Beyonce song called Sorry. And the, the lyrics go, middle fingers up, put them hands high, wave it in his face, tell him bye, boy. Tell him bye, boy, bye, boy, middle fingers up. Again, so it's ugly, right? So there's music embracing ugliness, absurdity. Like that, like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> who, who, who wants to be a part of this? Do you want your daughters doing this? Do you want your wife going to something like this? What the heck is this? What's going on? Now, here's the kicker of that whole imagery. 
I hate to do this. I got to take a break. I'll, I'll tell you the great irony of the bye boy slogan of the Women's March. But I hope, I hope you, you get what I'm trying to say here. There's, there's a strong desire, and this happens in our lives a lot, I guess, where if you're upset or you're angry, out of spite, you do the opposite, right? Kids do it. Husbands do it. Wives do it. He said this. She said this. So I'm going to do the opposite in spite. And that's what this woman's march is. It's not reasonable. It's not sensible. It's not sane. It's not rational. It's not focused. It's, there's no self-control. There's no righteousness. There's nothing beautiful or excellent or praiseworthy about it. It's spiteful and it's ugly. But there's a lot in our culture that does that too. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Um, let me wrap up this point here about the uh, the, the main slogan and, and uh, picture image of the Women's March. It's a uh, it's a uterus. It's a drawing of a uterus with the fallopian tube extended, and it f- turns into an arm, and then it's flicking you off. All right, beautiful, right? And then you have the slogan "Bye, boy." And again, that's from a Beyonce song, middle fingers up, put them hands high, wave it in his face, tell him bye, boy. Uh, be- be- oh, uh, Beyonce should be celebrated in our culture. Uh, Michelle Obama called her a great uh, you know, role model for women and blah, blah, blah. Again, embracing of the ugly. But the sl- let's just talk about the slogan, bye, boy. Bye, comma, boy. With a fallopian tube flicking you off. <laughs> the boy in this scenario is the government, right? Get the government out of our bedroom, that kind of thing. They want the government out of their lives, out of their reproductive lives, out of their womb. Okay. If, if you want to embrace a, a libertarian argument about that, that's great. But this is from their website, womensmarch.com. This is the official website. There's a bunch of categories why we march. And one of them is reproductive rights. Here it is. I'm just going to quote. I'm not going to leave anything out. We do not accept any federal, state, or local rollbacks, cuts, or restrictions on our ability to access, and access is such a loaded word there, quality reproductive health care services, birth control, HIV, AIDS care, and preventable or medically accurate sexuality education. This means open access, there it is again, to safe, legal, affordable abortion and birth control for all people, regardless of income, location, or education. Right? As Ann Althaus points out, it sounds like what they're really saying is, hi, government, hi, boy. <laughs> they're not saying bye boy they're saying hi boy get in here and never go away hey government get in my womb and never leave be involved in my women's health in every way possible including paying for it and never stop we don't accept any rollback we don't accept rolling back any involvement that the government currently has in my fallopian tubes <laughs> 
How interesting. So they simultaneously say, by government. But what they really mean is, never leave me, government. Are you with me? See how crazy that is? Bye, boy. And it's really, never leave. We don't accept any rollback of the control that you currently have over our reproductive health. And don't, don't kid yourself. Paying for it is control. Or you got money over it, you got control over it. And the crazy thing is the Republican message is we just don't want to pay for other people's abortions. That's it. And again, I agree with, uh, you know, there's, there's deeper things behind it all, but for the followers who are out there, it's all about abortion. Someone wrote on Twitter, we marched for many reasons. Wrote on my Twitter, we marched for many reasons. Planned Parenthood, Social Security, Medicare. Yeah, whatever. It was about abortion. And you couch it under women's rights. What are women's rights? Does anyone have any idea what are, what are women's rights? My wife asked me the other day, like Saturday, during this whole March thing. She's like, what are women's rights? <laughs> she's a woman. How does she not know what her rights are? Well, of course she does. She just, she just doesn't know what her extra rights are. What are her extra rights? She showed me one sign, and it was... Um, it was, we will pay for our tampons when men start paying for their razors. And, it's, <laughs> and every single person looking at that sign, you would think, looked at that and thought the exact same thing you're thinking right now, which is, men do pay for their razors. My wife asked what women's rights are because... She realizes the absurdity of that. There's no man's rights. There's no women's rights. There's just rights, human rights. Which again, always brings us back to the question, when does life begin? And science tells us life begins at conception. But those humans' lives don't count, according to these marchers, which is the greatest irony of all. Or the mother's rights trump the right of the baby inside of her. So maybe we should march for babies' rights. But again, that's absurd too because there's no such thing as babies' rights because the babies are human. It's just human rights. just rights. Last irony. On their website, um, this means, again, this is womensmarch.com. This means open access. Maybe we should spend a day or a segment and talk about what access means because you hear it all the time. There, there's, this is a great example of asking for clarification. When someone uses the word access, it's a buzzword. Ask them what they mean by that. They won't be able to define it, but I'll tell you what they really mean. Uh, this means open access to safe, legal, affordable abortion. There it is. And birth control for all people, regardless of income, location, or education. I posted on my Facebook page. Uh, you can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. A sign, an official Planned Parenthood sign. So these are printed signs handed out. This isn't just one person with markers and a and a poster board. This is an official Planned Parenthood sign. And it says, don't take away my birth control. Now, we can talk about how no one's planning on taking away your birth control. That's a totally made up fear. But let's not even go there. I responded on Facebook. This is, I'll quote, you say you're worried about women having access to birth control. Or, as this sign says, taking away birth control. Do you know Republicans and President Trump want the pill to be available over the counter. 
It was the, the governors of Colorado and New Hampshire, specifically. And others would, too, but those two so far have proposed bills that would allow for the bill, the birth control pill, to be available over the counter. So it's as, as you have as much access to the pill as you would Advil. Okay, is anyone lacking access to Advil? No. So, we, so Republicans want to make the pill as, as accessible as Tylenol. And, Repu- and uh, Democrats are against it. Why? Planned Parenthood, they don't want it available over the counter because they want you to need a prescription so that it forces more women to walk through their doors. Right now, if you want the birth control pill, you got to get a doctor's prescription. You can get that at Planned Parenthood. If you don't need that anymore, then you don't need to go to Planned Parenthood for that anymore. And then they lose a reason for their existence. So I ask all the women marching this last weekend, all these people scared of Trump, all these people who hate Republicans, why are you against increasing access to birth control like President Trump wants to do? Why are you so anti-woman? All right, we take some calls. 1-888-933-93. It's Slater Radio on Twitter. It's Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Talking about the Women's March and how in our culture today, ugly is beautiful. Right? That we have to embrace what is ugly, what is vulgar, what is disgusting, what is gross, um, and, and lift that up as if it's beautiful, as if it's a virtue, as if it's righteous. And I think that's uh, that's wrong. So we uh, played out some examples of that earlier at uh, Top of the show. I, I, I want to make one more comment here about the Women's March. So I think we really got to learn some lessons about what we saw this weekend. There's really got to be a better way than marching. I, I, I really, I'm starting to think the only benefit of a rally or a march is to encourage yourself and make it make yourself feel better because you're not alone. Are you with me? If if getting together for a rally or a march or something is done for that purpose, then that's fine. Because it is really easy to think that you're all alone with your opinions and your principles. So getting around like-minded people can be encouraging in that regard. That's great. But if you want to get together and you want to march, and even one iota of you thinks that you're marching in order to change other people's minds on this issue or to raise awareness about an issue, no. The, the, that will never happen. You will never change someone's mind, change someone's mind about, a, about uh, an issue on a, with a march. You'll never make people aware of an issue from a march. There's got to be a better way. Now, I'm going to be critical of 
some people here that I agree with. So bear with me. Please know where this is uh, coming from. We mentioned earlier that there's a CNBC reporter this, this last weekend wrote on Twitter wondering if there's ever been a larger gathering of people to protest in history, which, which is crazy. Especially because every year there's a right to life march in Washington, D.C. Every year. That has about as many people who showed up this last weekend. There were about 700,000 people this last weekend for the Women's March. The Right to Life March in 2013 had 650,000. They average about 400,000 a year. Every single year. And that's good. Okay, you want to go to the Right to Life March, it's fantastic. If you want to be around like-minded people and encourage yourself and encourage others, perfect. But I also just like to encourage people to add something on to that because that's not enough. Feeling good about yourself, feeling encouraged, although necessary sometimes, isn't doesn't help anyone. What if people who marched for pro-life views spent some time volunteering at a pro-life pregnancy center? Now, you maybe get mad at me. Don't get mad at me if you do both. That's great if you do both. But if you only do the march and you think that you changed something, you didn't. Because I tell you, pro-life pregnancy centers could really use the calories that you spent marching. And instead of paying Delta $500 to fly to D.C. to march, if you donated that $500 to a pro-life pregnancy center, gosh, they could use that money. Now, if you did both, that's fine. But if you only flew to D.C. to march because you think you're actually helping people, you're not. And instead of spending the weekend in D.C. marching, what if you just spent one hour a week for the next year? volunteering at a pro-life pregnancy center. God, they could use your love. You can march if it makes you happy, but don't think it's changing anyone's mind. Because when you march today, really it's all about preaching to the converted. Last weekend, why would wearing, think about this truly, why would wearing a knit hat. And this isn't just one or two people. This is uh, at least 50% of the, the crowd I saw. Why would wearing a knit hat in the shape of a vagina convince anyone that you have any sane or rational opinions at all on anything? But why did they do that? To encourage each other. That's all that was. That wasn't about convincing anyone of anything. It was about solidarity. And solidarity doesn't help anyone. So something to keep in mind when the roles will be reversed because they will be in the future. It always does. Also, other couple of things we can learn. If you march about every issue, then that march is about nothing. Meaning like if you're at one march and you're marching literally about 20 different things and if you went up to 20 different people at the women's marches last weekend, they would say 20 different reasons why they're marching. So if you're marching for everything, then it's about nothing. And if you march about everything all the time, well, you're just the boy who cried wolf. If you march about everything all the time, then you're really marching about nothing ever. And if you march about nothing, which is what this last march was, if you ever want to march about something, we've lost all credibility. Unless you bring your vagina hats, then maybe we'll give you... No, like that's not going to help either. Does that make sense? Like, let's say there's actual a legitimate issue that let's say Trump does something really wrong, and and uh, these women who marched last weekend want to march again. Like, no one's gonna care if you march every single day. But I just want to really let's let's really think about this moving forward as conservatives. 
or I am a conservative, you are too. I don't want to march or protest like what we saw last weekend because all it does is give off this air of superiority and self-righteousness as opposed to actually helping people and making a true difference. It's not about making yourself feel good, right? That's what these marches are all about. It's about making yourself feel good. And if you need that, that's fine. If you want that, that's fine. But you're not helping other people. So what are we doing? Is it about making ourselves feel good or is it about helping other people? Something to think about. All right, coming up next, I want to try something. Uh, this could could fail miserably here, but I, I want to give it a shot because I think I think there's some really, really important lessons here. Do you know someone in your life, and the answer is yes, but do you know someone in your life who is hysterical against Trump? Just out of their mind, crazy. Just He's going to put people in internment camps. He's going to start nuclear war. He's the worst president we've ever had. Like, they're just way, way over the top. No, no, listen, people can disagree. Policy, of course, of course. But just, like, like, I'm, like you're worried about this person. I think we all know that person. Why? Why are they like that? I want to play a clip here of a woman who has deep fears about Donald Trump and about his presidency. But... She works through them, and ultimately, after 25 minutes of this, and obviously we're not going to play the whole thing, but she works through these fears, and at the end, I'll give you the punchline, she realizes she made them all up. She made every single one of them up. This is an amazing moment of awareness and humility and snapping out of it. I've never seen anything like it. And, and I really hope I can I can share this story well enough that it, it makes sense for you. Um, we're going to do that coming up next. I'm really, really excited about it. one 888 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, we got a super busy show today, obviously. What a crazy week uh, with, with Donald Trump. It's, it's amazing. Like, I didn't. Think, is Trump allowed to follow through on all his campaign promises? Like, no president ever does. So it's just so odd that he is. So uh, we'll talk, obviously, all about that. But I want to start here. We are going to do a segment here that could be a fall flat on our face segment. It could be a total disaster. But I think it's worth a shot. This is the clearest example of Trump hysteria. That I've ever seen, but here's the key. I'm not just going to play someone screaming, yelling about Trump. We're over that. It's Trump hysteria, and it's revealed to her. So the person who's hysterical works through it, 
and realizes she's hysterical. How often does that ever happen, right? She realizes she's making it all up in her head. And I want to play that process here for you. It's super, super interesting. Have you ever heard of Byron Katie? I have not. I don't know a lot about her. I've been doing a little more research on her. She seems to be a a self-help guru. Uh, I I don't necessarily mean guru as a a pejorative. I, I, I don't know enough about her one way or the other. But she has a process that she has called the work. And it's about identifying stressful thoughts, right? Things that cause you anxiety. So you identify those thoughts. And then you ask four questions about each thought. And the four questions are first, is it true? Can you absolutely know it's true? How do you react? And what happens when you believe that thought? And who would you be without that thought? Okay. And then... And I'll explain all this in a second. You'll see it happen in a second. So you ask those four questions about this anxious thought, and then you turn it around. You literally say the opposite of it. And you do that because when you have these anxious thoughts, you're creating a movie in your mind. You're creating this reality in your brain when you have these negative thoughts. So if you literally just turn it around, it totally changes the movie and therefore changes how you act and what you see. So, so an example is um, if your thought is, my husband should treat me better. She goes through this whole process. And then at the end, she says, okay, now turn it around. And the turnaround is, I should treat my husband better. And, and people realize when they go through this process that they're doing a lot of projecting. Right? So if, if, usually if this process, if someone uh, has a problem with another person, it's because they're projecting their own problems, insecurities, hurt, pain, fears, anxieties onto this other person and blaming them for it or whatever. So anyway, that's a lot, but I want to get right to this video. So she hosts these seminars. Again, full disclosure, I really know nothing about this woman other than what I just shared there. She could be a total hack. I have no idea. But her website says that her goal is to help people embrace reality. And that's what we're all about here. Reality. Right? So whether she's a hack or not, I don't know. But I think this clip has a lot of truth to it. And I, and I wish she could do this with every woman who went to the Women's March last weekend. So here it is. This is uh, Byron Kelly. There's about 200 people in the room, maybe. Uh, but this scene, it's her and then another woman, and they're each sitting in these big comfy chairs. And the woman went through this worksheet where she wrote down her biggest fears. Now, stick with me here. You have to hear the end of this. You have to have to hear the end of this. You have to hear her process. This is awesome. So these are her fears. This is the first step of the process. Put your fears down on paper. Let's, let's hear what you've written. I am frightened of Donald Trump. Because he could create concentration camps. He could start you're, a nuclear war. You're not war. afraid of him because he could. When you're writing these worksheets, you know, he could. That doesn't... I'm afraid he will. Yeah, I'm afraid he will. I'm afraid he will start a nuclear war. I'm afraid he will ruin the environment for my son and future generations. I want Donald Trump to not be president, to disappear to not be on the way to ruining our country, or at least to get a better, kinder set of cabinet members. Donald Trump shouldn't be president, should step down and offer the space to Hillary Clinton, (laughs) or even another Republican candidate, shouldn't say and do racist, sexist, 
ableist, homophobic, and xenophobic things. Sort of a swear word coming up here if there's kids in the car. I need Donald Trump to disappear, <laughs> step aside, die, <laughs> or wake the F up. Donald Trump and his supporters are possibly the bringers of internment camps, concentration camps, or even Armageddon. Okay. So those are this woman's fears about Donald Trump. And that pretty much sums up all the anti-Trump hysteria that I've heard, right, embodied in this one woman. And she articulated it very nicely on this piece of paper. Here are my fears about Donald Trump. All right. So now, so that's step one. Now let's go through the process, right? Let's ask these, these questions. The first question, is it true? So, so she focuses on the concentration camp part first. Donald Trump's going to put us in concentration camps. Is that true? Here it is. So Donald Trump is going to create concentration camps. Is it true? So several of you, I heard that, you know, internment camps. I, I heard several of you when we were meditating out loud yesterday. He's going to um, create concentration camps. So can you absolutely know that it's true He's going to create concentration camps. No, no. Okay, can anyone here absolutely know that that's what he's going to do? Okay, so just feel that for a moment. It's as though we think if we don't fear it, we can't do anything about it to stop it. Listen to that last line there. That's huge. It's as if, if we don't fear it, then it's like you can't do anything to stop it. So there's this drive by people to fear, to make up in their mind, to create this movie in their brain and fear the absolute worst because that's the only way they'll stop it from happening. Are you with me? But they skipped over the most important part. Will this happen? No, it won't. So in reality, there's nothing to stop from happening. There's nothing to fear, but they have to make it up. Does that make sense? So again, she says, it's as if, if we don't fear it, then we can't do anything to stop it. So people are like, oh my gosh, there's going to be concentration camps. I need to think this so that we can stop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not going to happen. So you're just driving yourself crazy. So this is what she does. She goes through this process and she asks everyone in the room to close their eyes and imagine these concentration camps that Donald Trump is going to put us in. Think, really, like, honestly, close your eyes. Imagine what, the, what are these concentration camps going to look like? What's it going to, how's this going to work? And she does that for a minute or so. And then she asks people to describe it, describe what they saw. And the deal is everyone thinks of past images. So all the future images of what Donald Trump's internment camps are going to look like are all past images. They're all images of Nazi or Japanese concentration camps. So we take those previous things and we carry them forward. They're borrowed images of the past. And we just make it up. And, 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 and like borrowed as in we weren't there. Like no one was there for that. So you make it up. Like everyone's totally, totally, completely making it up. What they think it looked like, I mean, it's just based on some pictures maybe you've seen in some history books, or maybe a documentary or something, and you take that and you move it forward and you apply that to what Donald Trump is going to do. You are making it up. One more clip. So you're witnessing all the evil in the world. Is it in Trump or is it in you? I will create concentration camps. 
Yeah, you just did. There's the proof on paper. Yeah. And notice how much time you spend in that, that movie. Creating concentration camps, creating concentration camps, as though if it did happen, that's not enough. You have to create it now, create it now. That's interesting. So, I mean, this, I know she sounds like, like goofy, but go with this. So you have to turn around. So the turnaround is uh, Donald Trump's going to concentra create concentration camps. The turnaround is, well, Donald Trump is not going to create concentration camps, which is true. Or I'm going to create concentration camps. And she's like, yeah, you just did. In your brain, you made up this fear. You totally made it up. And people think it so much. They, 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 people think they have to think it. They think that they have to fear it until it comes true. So she goes through this with, with each and every fear that this woman has, right? The nuclear war part, right? The woman says she fears a nuclear war because she saw a movie a long time ago about a nuclear war. And, and she remembers how horrible the images were. So she's taken that fear and she's imposed it on Trump. So in her head, she's essentially created a nuclear war in this movie in her brain and then fears it in real life to the point where it's really affecting her actual life. So she's made up a movie in her head and then reacts to that in real life. That's a hallucination. I'll skip ahead here. She, she goes through this uh, whole process. And again, is it true? Is it true? And this woman, she realizes none of them are. None of her fears are true. So 25 minutes later, it's a half hour video. 25 minutes later, she has an epiphany. And she actually, and the lady leading this is not instructed her to do this. She has an epiphany and this woman rips up the paper that she wrote all the fears down on. She rips it up and she realizes how foolish all these fears were. Think about it. This is someone who, and I want to play one more clip when we get back, but she's like, I, I stay, I can't sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm crying about Donald Trump. I can't believe the people around me. I hate the people around me. How could they do this? What country am I living in? He's going to kill everyone. He's going to put everyone in concentration camps. We're going to have a nuclear war. I mean, she's like the worst of the worst when it comes to the fear and hysteria. And 25 minutes into just sitting down and saying, is this true? She realizes no, and then rips it up. Now I want to take a break here. I don't want to cut the conclusion of this short. This conclusion is everything. This conclusion is everything. Never forget what we're going to do next and apply it to everything over the next four years that you see. It applies to everything. Never forget this conclusion. I'll share it next. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. All right, let's get back to this. We'll play the conclusion here. We're playing some clips from um, Byron Katie. She's a self-help guru. Uh, I should just say this is, again, not an endorsement of her. I really don't know if she's legit or not. I know nothing about her. This is my first interaction with her. But she had this seminar. I guess she hosts these seminars. There's maybe 200 people in the audience. And she has everyone write down their biggest fears. And this woman goes up on the stage and does a little one-on-one -on -one with Byron Katie. And they're going through this process that she has developed. And the first question is, is they, they take their fears and one by one they ask, she asks, is this true? 
Now, this woman's fears were all the classic Trump fears. We don't have time to play it again, but it's all, um, and she's very calm about it. I mean, she's just reading from her paper that she wrote her fears down on. He's going to send us to concentration camps. He's going to start a nuclear war, bigotry, blah, 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 everything, right? So she says that these fears are so all-encompassing in her life that she could barely live her life. I'll play the conclusion of this process in a second, but um, just one more example of the process that this woman went through. Uh, This is the final fear she wrote down. She's 20 minutes into the process, right? So she wrote down a bunch of fears, one by one, one by one, one, but she went bump, 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 broke down each and every single one. This is the final fear. So she's 20 minutes into the process. I think she's probably went through six different fears by this point. And you can see after each one, after each one gets deconstructed, you can see her body language start to crumble, right? She, she built up this fear skyscraper about Donald Trump and one by one, she's taken out a different brick and a brick and a brick and the whole thing is starting to fall down. And this happens 1304. I need Trump to disappear, step aside, die or wake the F up. Okay. So if he did all those things, would you be happy? That completely changed. Would you be happy? Were you happy before you even ran? (laughs) Happier. Oh, really? It seems like it. Like comparing with what moment? Uh, Well, like now I, sometimes I cry because of this. I wake Mm -hmm. up in the night. Mm -hmm. Have you ever cried? Yeah, for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But not because of the president. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So this woman is projecting all of her everything on Trump. All of her sadness, her depression, her hurt, loneliness, whatever it is, she's projecting it all on Trump. She thinks Trump is the source of her pain, but she's had pain before, and now she's just blaming it on Trump, and she's blaming it on our racist country and all the rest. This Trump hysteria is all made up. People are truly taking all their hurt and projecting it on him and projecting it on you. Like you're the problem. And here's this woman finally realizing, no, I'm making this up. All right, I want to get to the ending here. This is the grand conclusion. And this explains so many people on the left today. Here it is. I once had a a counselor who said to me, you're a second generation war victim. And I loved that. Like someone understands. But, you know, then there's victims or violent people. And that whole thing of like grabbing onto that identity, wanting to be understood as someone who had these things. Who suffers legitimately. Yeah, yeah, it's legitimate suffering. It's like I suffer legitimately, and let's see, I'm still suffering. Suffering is suffering. Yeah. 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 There's been this crazy story, like, if people got it, if they understood my suffering, then I'd be better. Then I'd stop suffering. This is all bull****.
She's ripping it up right now, ripping up the paper with all her fears. The Trump sign. <laughs> I'm good, Katie. You, you, you know, sweetheart, you have just made America great again. All right, can we, can we play that last part one more time? There's this one sentence here, which is so important. Yeah. Yeah. There's been this crazy story, like, if people got it, if they understood my suffering, then it, I'd be better. Then I'd stop suffering. All right, stop there. So, and that's when she realizes this is all nonsense. So this woman has this desire to be a victim. She wants so badly to be someone who suffers legitimately. Did you hear that? She said she wants to have the identity of someone who suffers legitimately. But she hasn't suffered legitimately. I mean, we've all had bad things happen in her life. But I mean, she's talking like, like she's a Holocaust victim or something. She wants to be a victim so badly, she put her identity into that. And she wants, because she, she now thinks of herself as a victim, she wants for people to validate her victimhood. She, she said she wants victimhood to be her story. Did you catch her say that? She said, I want, my, I want victimhood to be my story. She wants people to understand her suffering. And then once people understand it, then she'll stop suffering. But she realized she had to go through this process to realize she's not suffering. All of her fears that she wrote down, they're all BS. It's all nonsense. She made it all up. How many people today want to be victims? We've said for years now that there's a, a victim hierarchy in a way where in the past, being able to overcome was seen as the pinnacle of strength, right? You, you want to be someone who's strong and capable and, and admired for overcoming challenges. But today it's flipped. Today, not even, you don't even have to be an actual victim to be put in high regard, right? Like, so, so people fake victimhood. They make it up. They imagine victimhood so that they can cash in on the currency of victimhood. And then when you don't validate it, you're the bad person. And people make up because they want to be a victim so bad, they just make up all these fears. And they've been projecting all this stuff on Trump and on you. Super interesting. All right, what do you think? 1-888-900-3393. one 3393 And also uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. that we need to watch in the coming days here. We'll start with, eh, let's start with the press. So Glenn Reynolds framed this very nicely. Big picture, what Trump is changing are a, a bunch of post-World War II uh, institutional arrangements. All right, so Trump is looking at how our, our government works and, and highlighting the things that just don't make sense anymore. And this is a good process for all of us to do in our lives. <laughs> uh, there's so many things we do in our daily lives and in our home and at our work that 
made sense at one point in time, but they just don't make sense anymore. Actually, our education system is a good example. Who's the uh, Sir, what's his name? Uh, Sir, hold on. Sir Ken Robinson. Ken Robinson has the best TED Talks about education. There's like three of them. Watch them all. They're amazing. And his argument is that education, the public education system, made sense at a point in time. Right? When it was developed 150 years ago, it made perfect sense for what it was trying to do and the era it existed in. It just doesn't make any sense anymore right now. And that's why we always ask on this show, when we reevaluate something, if you built this thing from scratch, would it look like this? And you could pick that with anything in the government. If you built, whatever, if you, if you started the, the Pentagon from, strat, from scratch, would it look like this? Would the bureaucracy look like this? Would the process look like this? No, you would never create, let's go back to education. If you wanted to build the education system from scratch, you would never create it to look like this. This makes no sense at all the way it looks. But we do it like this just because it's the way it's always been done. And there's so many things in our lives, not just politics, but just in our lives that we do because it's just the way it's always been done. So Trump is coming in in our government and saying, well, no, we're not going to do it like that anymore. And the special status of the press is one of those things. That just doesn't make sense anymore. They got special status because they were seen as powerful The media, the media, the press, newspapers, TV, they were seen as powerful and responsible. But both of those assumptions are no longer true. They're no longer powerful. If they were, Trump wanted to be president. They're also no longer the only gatekeepers. People can find the truth by walking through other gates. Used to be one gate in town. That's when they were powerful. But now there's infinite numbers of gates. Technology has torn down the wall. There are no more gates, actually. It's just, you just go, find the truth yourself. So that's number one. Like they're, they're no longer powerful. But also, they're no longer responsible. How about the, uh, the, the Time Magazine reporter tweeting out, I think the day after the inauguration, maybe it was inauguration day, tweeting out that Trump got rid of the Martin Luther King Jr. bust in the White House. Okay, tweets it right out. Oh, the bust is gone. In reality, there was a cameraman standing in front of it. So he just couldn't see it. What the heck is that? What kind of reporting is that? That's a Time Magazine reporter. So you tell me the guy, he looks up, Zeke Miller, he looks up across the room where the MLK bust used to be, sees a, I don't even know, like obviously the cameraman is standing in front of it. Wouldn't you assess? Like, oh, the camera guy's probably standing in front of it. But he looks at it, he doesn't see it. And then just sends out a tweet, the MLK Jr. bust is gone. And then the camera guy like steps to the side and he's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> what is that? What kind of reporting? That's Time Magazine. So they're not responsible. Like Time Magazine is one of those, the old, you know, institutional sources. They're not responsible. What is that? What kind of reporting is that? And it just proves that they're just looking for things to get them on. Right? Oh, the MLK bust isn't there. That means he's racist. Got to tweet it out. So they're no longer powerful because of technological changes and they're no longer responsible. So they shouldn't have any more insider status and Trump is eliminating it. It's awesome. Imagine the anxiety it would cause. Imagine if you were in this elite group, right? The White House press corps. And Trump tells you that he's going to move the press room to a different room that's four times the size so that it can fit more people. 
Imagine if you were uh, the White House correspondent of the New York Times and he told you that he was going to do that. You'd be all, oh, but, 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 but it's an elite club. I don't want any more people here. I don't want any bloggers here. I don't want any talk radio goons here. This is our club. So understandably, there's a lot of anxiety from the old media. And because of that, because the press is anxious about their future, they're going to lash out even more. Example of that is the goofiness about how many people went to the inauguration. First of all, who cares? No one. No one cares. Now, if you really want to want, want to know why fewer people went to Trump's inauguration in person, it's very simple. Everyone's coming up with these different reasons. No, no, no. Here's why. Everyone in Washington, D.C. voted for Barack Obama. So when the inauguration was going on in 2008, everyone in Washington, D.C. went. Today, no one in Washington, D.C. or in a hundred mile radius from Washington, D.C. voted for Donald Trump. So no one in Washington, D.C. went to the inauguration. So everyone who was there had to travel great distances to get there. So that's why there were fewer people. But third point, who cares? So Trump, because he's been playing the media like a fiddle for a year and a half, prods the media. He goads them. I love it. He goads them into talking about petty things like this. He throws them this bait to make them do things and the pre- and talk about things. And the press jumps on it. They take that bait because they think it makes Trump look petty. They think it makes Trump look impulsive. They think it makes Trump look dumb. They think it makes Trump look like he lacks self-control. But when they take the bait, it makes the media look dumb and impulsive and lacking self-control and petty. It's amazing. Trump throws out this, this whatever is common about the number of people at the inauguration and the, the press just goes with They jump on top of it and they won't shut up about it. And the American people, no one cares. But the more they talk about it, the less trust anyone has in them. Trump is playing them like a fiddle. So I got a little tip to the press like they deserve it. The way to be seen as more trustworthy is to double down, excuse me, is not to double down on being anti-Trump. The appropriate counter move is to be more trustworthy. (laughs) The only way, you have to be more neutral. Now, I'm not saying soft on Trump by any stretch of the imagination. Honest, neutral, fair. Get back to actual reporting. Leave the punditry to the pundits and to the American people. You report. That's the only way you'll ever be trusted again. And you undermine your own credibility with every gotcha story. And Trump may set them up for you on the T, but that doesn't mean you got to hit him. Every single article you write about something that doesn't matter in the least, it just hurts your own credibility. And if you keep doing it like this, there's going to be a story that comes along that will actually do damage to Trump, but no one's going to believe it. It's just going to be more dishonest media. And you are causing that. You are setting that up every day when you talk about how busts of Martin Luther King Jr. have been removed and when you talk about crowd size. So that's the first thing to keep in mind as we move forward here. Will the press ever decide to be more objective? 
It's the only way they're ever going to survive. If they ever, if the big media, like you know, Washington Post, Washington Times, New York Times, ABC, NBC, CBS, right? If they ever want to be powerful again, they need to first be responsible again. That's point one. Second thing to watch in the next couple of days here. Trump and Congress and their relationship. This, this is going to be very intriguing. Example, Trump is talking a lot about spending cuts. Now, there's two types of spending. First, you have mandatory and then you have discretionary. Two types of federal spending, mandatory and discretionary. Mandatory spending is Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, interest on the debt. It's mandatory spending. Entitlements. Discretionary spending is everything else. So Department of Education, whatever. Mandatory spending is about 70% of the budget. Trump is deciding to go after discretionary spending first, the 30% of the budget. Now, there's two things that come that happen with this. First of all, most of the money, obviously, is spent on mandatory spending. So you're going to get a lot of Republicans who are going to come out and say, no, don't cut discretionary. You got to cut mandatory spending. Go where the money is. Mandatory spending. Mandatory spending. Don't worry about discretionary. Go to mandatory spending. Got to go after entitlements, entitlements, entitlements. Yes, you do. But 30% of, I think, a $4 trillion federal budget is still a lot of money. And it's low-hanging fruit. Just because there's more money in the mandatory box doesn't mean that you have to cut the mandatory first. I say you cut the low-hanging fruit first. And the low-hanging fruit is in the discretionary box. Cut that, then move on to the entitlements and the mandatory spending. But you're going to get a lot of Republicans coming out and being like, don't cut discretionary, you got to cut the mandatory. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. First things first. That's what they don't get. Here's the second point, though. And this is what's going to be so fascinating to see if Trump can do this. Everyone's got their pet projects. Everyone's got their pet projects. This is how the government gets so big in the first place. Two things I've heard so far proposed that are going to be cut. One is a federal program that subsidizes airplane service to tiny airports that almost no one goes to. And we've covered this before, but there's like there's air like little like a little airport in Montana or something. And normally a flight would be two thousand dollars to go, but the federal government subsidizes it and makes it a hundred bucks. The senator for Alaska said that this would shut down rural Alaska, and she said she's going to fight tooth and nail to make sure it never it, it doesn't get cut. So that's this silly program is going to stay. Another idea is closing the Legal Services Corporation, four hundred million dollars. It's money for civ- civil uh, legal aid to low income people. So the Congressional Budget Office a couple of years ago said it's totally useless and needs to go. But you know, if Trump proposes cutting the Legal Services Corporation. The Congressional Black Caucus and the media is going to talk about how we're imprisoning black people and blah, blah, blah. And they're going to make it a big race thing. And how Trump is putting black people in internment camps or so much such hysteria. And everyone's going to freak out and be like, no, we can't cut the legal services corporation. And no one even going to even know what it does. But we can't cut it. We got to keep it. So that's not going to get cut either. So these are the first two proposals I've heard. And it looks like both of them may be dead ends in Congress. Or I should say both of them have always been dead ends in Congress. I don't know how Trump's going to be able to maneuver that. And if you can't cut those two programs, the Legal Services Corporation, which the Congressional Budget Office says is useless, and if you can't cut this rural airport program or whatever, if you can't cut those two things, how are you going to be able to cut anything else? Everything is so ingrained and entrenched. We know how he can play the media like a fiddle. We'll see if he can uh, negotiate with Congress well. I can't wait to see how he gets it done. All right, what do you think? one 900 3393
1-888-900-3393. And also uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hello, Slater Crusaders. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. I only got about three minutes here. I want to talk about sanctuary cities. I want to define that term. I know you've heard it a million times. You've said it a million times. But I want to make sure we have a very firm grasp of what it is. We say on the show all the time that if you uh, ever get in a conversation with a progressive, ask them to define their terms. Right? They use the buzzword, a progressive buzzword, or something that sounds strange. Ask them what they mean by that exactly. Most of the time, they can't. Now, if someone does that to us, we got to be able to define a sanctuary city. So real quick, I'll run through the process. It'll take about two minutes. Here's how it works. A police officer arrests someone for something, let's say drunk driving. They are brought to a local county jail, usually run by the sheriff's department. They get their fingerprints, send the fingerprints off to the FBI. FBI sends it off to ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. ICE then asks for or submits a detainer request. That is ICE asking the jail to hold the inmate, the person, for another 48 hours so that they can check that person's immigration status. And then if they're illegal, they can get a warrant and then they can begin the deportation proceedings. Now, this is where the split happens. If you are not a sanctuary city, then the sheriff, the county jail says, okay, we'll hold the person for a day because they were drinking and driving, right? We would otherwise release them after 24 hours. But because you offered a, or you asked for a detainer request, okay, we'll keep them for another two days on top of that while you figure out if they're an illegal immigrant or not. That's how a normal city works. A sanctuary city says, no, we're not going to hold them for another 48 hours. We're going to hold them for as long as uh, we were going to because of whatever crime they originally committed, drunk driving, disorderly conduct, whatever. But we're not going to hold them for another 48 hours just because you want us to. That's a sanctuary city. Now, why don't they? Well, they say it violates the Fourth Amendment. Fourth Amendment says you can't be held against your will uh, without uh, probable cause and due process, right? And just because you might be an illegal immigrant is not reason enough to stay in jail for another 48 hours that's a sanctuary city that's the argument which is why some some progressives now instead of saying i'm a sanctuary city they say we're a fourth amendment city what i think trump needs to do because to be honest they actually do have a point about that what i think trump needs to do is to speed up the ice process of figuring out whether or not someone is an illegal immigrant they need to speed up the warrant process they need to speed up the deportation proceedings deportation proceedings so that it doesn't require a 48 hour detainer request it doesn't require another 48 hour hold this has to be an essential step of trump's immigration plan 1-888-900-3393 mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to mike slater 
part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. How are you, Slater Crusaders? Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. What a crazy week. A lot to do. You know, a lot of people said, uh, well, you probably want Hillary to win because there'll be more to talk about. Nope. (laughs) <laughs> There's plenty to talk about uh, with with, uh, with Trump having one. I want to talk about intellectualism and uh, why people use that word. So th- this is why. So the Washington Post wrote an article. David Gellern, Gellernter, David Gellernter, fiercely anti-intellectual. Think about that. You're not just anti-intellectual. You're fiercely anti-intellectual when did the washington post become buzzfeed what is this fiercely anti-intellectual computer scientist is being eyed for trump's science advisor (laughs) what a ridiculous sentence Uh, an anti-intellectual computer scientist what do you (laughs) that doesn't make any sense at all i mean like i mean if you wanted to be super stereotypical it'd be like anti-intellectual nascar fan or something like anti-intellectual computer scientist so, and I don't need any emails from NASCAR fans. It was a joke. So who is David Gellernter? He's a Yale professor. He created parallel computing, which makes it possible for to, do, to do anything that computers do today. The co-founder of Sun Microsystems called him, quote, one of the most brilliant and visionary computer scientists of our time. He has a bunch of degrees, classical Hebrew among them. He's written a bunch of books about history and religion and artificial intelligence and philosophy. Are you going to call that guy anti-intellectual? Not only are you going to call him anti-intellectual, fiercely anti-intellectual. Are you kidding me? Why? Not a big Obama guy. Oh, that's it. Fiercely anti-intellectual. Developer of parallel computing. Do you see how absurd the name calling has gone? As Jonah Goldberg points out, there's been a long history of so-called intellectuals being liberal. So today, intellectualism equals liberalism. Or more specifically here, if you are not a liberal, then you are anti-intellectual. Just so you know. Reminds me of one of my favorite Montgomery Gentry songs. You know what I'm talking about. The old man right there in the rocking chair at the courthouse square. You know. He says he he could buy your fancy car with $100 bills. Don't let those faded overalls fool you. He made his millions without one day of schooling. So where did this concept of an intellectual come from? As a noun, like you are, you are an intellectual, not you are intellectual, like you're smart. You are an intellectual as like a class of people. 
See the difference there? Like if you're smart, you have intellect. You are intellectual. But if you're an intellectual, that's a class of people. When did that happen? So it started during what's called the uh, the Dreyfus Affair. Here's the very short of the story. It was 1894. Captain Alfred Dreyfus, he was in the French military, and he was accused of giving secrets to the Germans. He was accused of being a traitor. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Turns out he was framed. And not only was he framed, but when the government found out that he was framed and he was innocent, there was actually this huge cover-up, right, to cover up all the government's mistakes. This was all revealed, and then there was a second trial. So this whole process created, a, or I was going to say it created divisions, but it revealed a lot of divisions in, in French society. It was very O.J. Simpson in that regard, right? During this whole case, there was a man by the name of uh, Zola. He was a writer. But in this case, he, was, uh, he, he acted more as like a reporter. And every morning, he would... Uh, write a new article on the front page of one of the French newspapers. And it was an open letter to the president of France. And every morning, this newspaper would sell out first thing in the morning. Everyone couldn't get enough of Zolda's writings. And he would accuse the president of France of obstructing justice and all this other stuff. Trying to, they didn't, the government didn't frame the guy, but they mistakenly um, charged him and then covered up all their mistakes. So Tom Wolfe, wrote an essay about this in 2000. And he was talking about Zola and who he was and how Zola devoured the details of the case. This Zola guy, he knew more about this case than any judge or prosecutor in the world. And supporters of Zola, fans of his, called him an intellectual. The very first time it was used, an intellectual. Because he was brilliant and he was applying his craft so passionately to this cause. So that was the first use of this term. Now I want to quote Tom Wolf here. He says, the new hero, like today, the intellectual today, as opposed to Zola a hundred years ago, doesn't need to burden himself with the irksome toil of reporting or research. For that matter, he needs no particular education, no scholarly training, no philosophical grounding, no conceptual frameworks, no knowledge of academic or scientific developments. He doesn't need skill sets. So what does he need? Indignation about the powers that be and the middle class fools who do their bidding is all you need. Bango, you're an intellectual. What does that mean? The point is you don't need to be intellectual to be an intellectual. You just need to be smug. Think about it. The guy created parallel computing, called one of the most brilliant and visionary computer scientists of our time. He has more degrees than I could fathom, and he's called anti-intellectual? Why? Because he's not smug enough. Because again, if, if being an intellectual is all based on talent and ability and skills, well, then if he's not an intellectual, then who is? It's about being smug. Are you smug enough? Do you have enough indignation? He doesn't. So he's not an intellectual. Crazy, right? Being an intellectual has nothing to do with intellect anymore. And there's your proof. 
You just have to think you're better than everyone else. And if you don't, if you have the humility to realize that you're not better than anyone else, then you're not an intellectual. In fact, you're fiercely anti-intellectual. <laughs> right? So it's not even like you're just normal. You're anti-intellectual. Here's Wolf. It was his indignation that elevated him to a plateau. Speaking about an intellectual today. It's his indignation that elevated him to the plateau of moral superiority. And once up there, if he was in a position to look down at the rest of humanity, beautiful. And it hadn't cost him any effort, intellectual or otherwise. You're just, you get on your perch, you look down on people, you're super smug, and you're an intellectual. Voila. Congratulations. Nassim Talib, another super smart guy. Where's he teaching now? He used to be a Wharton. Somewhere weird. He's like, oh, he's in Paris, I think. He's in the University of Paris. Something like that. He calls them the uh, intellectual yet idiots. <laughs> that's, the, that's the class that he calls them. The intellectuals yet idiots. They're the people who tell the rest of us what to do, what to eat, how to speak, how to think, and who to vote for. But he says the problem with the one-eyed following the blind is that these self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut on Coconut Island. And he gives a million examples. They're all, well, let me give a few. Let me just quote this one paragraph. He says with psych, so this, he's trying to prove how the intellectuals are not that intellectual with psychology papers replicating less than 40%. Let me explain what that means. So in science, you have to be able to, you make experiments that you can replicate, right? If you can't do that, then it's not science. You need to be able to replicate the experience, uh, experiment over and over and over again to see if you get similar results. But psychology papers replicate less than 40%. Dietary advice reversing after 30 years of fat phobia. We've talked before about how um, the sugar lobbyists paid a bunch of Harvard scientists to make a bunch of studies that say that sugar is good for you and fat is what's making people fat. And it's totally the opposite. I mean, it's sugar that makes people fat. So we've had 30 years of fat phobia when fat's not the problem. Sugar. Macroeconomic analysis working worse than astrology. The appointment of Bernanke who is less than clueless of the risks and pharmaceutical trials replicating at best only a third of the time. And he goes on and on and on with a bunch of different examples. So, so we got a couple things going on here. Let's just refresh this, refute this. You have intellectuals that don't need to be smart. You just need to be smug. You have people who have a ton of intellect, but because they're not smug, they're anti-intellectual. Now let me end here because we, we talked about this last week. The intelligent yet idiot uh, pathologizes so uh, or pathologizes so um, uh, looks at other people as abnormal, right? So the, the, the intelligent yet idiot looks down on people for doing things he doesn't understand without ever realizing it is his understanding that may be limited. This is the humility we speak, out, uh, speak of a lot. Bias in the media, it ranges from one extreme of just liars to people in the middle who mean well, but they have bias because we all do. We're all human beings, right? Everyone comes to every situation, every story. Let's say you're a journalist and you have to write about whatever. You're going to come to that with different experiences. 
and different opinions and different perspectives and everything. You're going to come at it with a different perspective than someone else is going to be. That's just inherent and because we're human beings, not robots. The key is to be aware of your, your perspective and to be aware of your limitations and to have the humility to understand that you might have bias and to think about what you may not know. We talked about this last week with the article from the Washington Post about gun silencers written by someone who obviously has never fired a gun in his life. And he's writing this whole article about how gun silencers are evil and horrible. And he is, it's, a, it's not an opinion piece. It's a uh, news article. Never once does he have the humility to, to be aware of what he's not aware of. Right? So this is what he's saying. He's saying the idiot, excuse me, the intellectual yet idiot looks down on others for doing things he doesn't understand without ever realizing that it's his understanding that may be limited. They're arrogant, smug, condescending. So what does all this mean? I think this election, if nothing else, if nothing else, it proved don't pay attention to the forecasters and the political scientists and the campaign consultants and the pollsters and all the talking heads telling you what's going to happen or telling you what you should do. How, how could Trump's election prove that anymore? But also don't listen to those same people on TV and wherever telling you what's true or what's right or what's good. If, the, if they can tell you with a straight face that the guy who invented parallel computing and is as highly esteemed as they come in the scientific community, if that pundit at the Washington Post can tell you that he's fiercely anti-intellectual just because he might serve as Trump's science advisor, why would you ever listen to that person again? And that is the media. So never be confused. Bottom line, never be confused. There's a big difference between intellect and being an intellectual. Add that to your list of buzzwords. When you see an intellectual, throw a flag on the field and really pay attention to what they're trying to say. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. I want to share this story here for no reason. I just think it's interesting. The other day I talked to the biographer of a book about William B. Ogden, who is the first great railroad tycoon in America. So it reminded me of this story. I'm reading this Ulysses S. Grant uh, biography, an American, an American Ulysses. It's awesome. Read it. It's great. So Ulysses S. Grant in 1850, 52, he was stationed with the army or he was told to go uh, out to California with the army because there were so many people traveling west for gold, right? So the U.S. government sent some some military out there to keep some peace. So I don't know where he was at the time. I think he was in upstate New York, but he had three options on how to get there, right? So think about this. You're in New York state. I got to get to California. It's 1852. How do we do it? Three options. First, Oregon Trail. 
The Oregon Trail takes four to six months, and you got to leave at a certain time of the year in order to make it happen. Four to six months. Option one. Option two, he could sail around the southern tip of Argentina, Cape Horn, which took a year. That's option two. Sail for a year to get to California. Or option three, travel across Panama. Now, this was 70 years before the Panama Canal. So you had to travel across Panama. There was no canal. So he decided to go option number three. So 700 people get on a boat from somewhere like New Orleans, I think. And they set sail to Panama. So that takes a couple weeks to get there. By the way, the boat, it's half military men and half men and children, men and women uh, just going out to California to find gold. That's what's half and half. So they get to Panama after a couple weeks, get off in Panama. They get on a train for 20 miles. It's a hundred degrees, humid as Hades. And the train is like a burning furnace. And you got everyone packed into this train for 20 miles. Then they get to this river. They got to get out of the train with all their stuff with them, right? Imagine they have stuff, right? They pile into these dugout canoes on this river. Paddled by uh, men, and I'll quote from Grant, uh, these canoes steered by natives, not inconveniently burdened with clothing. (laughs) So you got naked locals steering these canoes with people piled in them, right? One mile an hour up the the river, up current. One day into it, they all thought they were going to die, right? They They were all swarmed by all kinds of bugs and birds, and they were attacked by monkeys, and it was horrible. It gets dark. They pull over to the side of the river, and they have to sleep in the dugout canoes, as Grant said, in shivering terror. Okay? So you do that for a couple days. A couple days. Then you arrive in, in the village. Right? Now they have to go find mules to trek the next 25 miles to get to the coast. While they're looking for mules, cholera breaks out. They're in this town for a week looking for mules. 37 people die in one day. Okay, you got people dying every day, but in one day, 37 people died. And when they died, they were just thrown in the jungle. They finally found enough mules. They rode them for a couple weeks, and they got to the, the other coast of Panama. And there they found a boat there to take them to San Francisco. But the boat was quarantined because so many people on the boat had cholera. So they had to wait a few more weeks before they could board the boat. And if someone who was on the boat died, they would wrap them up and tie a cannonball to their legs and throw them overboard. 700 people started the trip. 450 made it alive. Think about that. What? Like, that was 150 years ago. That was how you got to California. Oh, and then you got to get on the boat, and then you got another couple weeks up to San Francisco. What in the world? So Ulysses S. Grant was 29. At this, he's 29 years old. And one survivor, and that's what it was a survivor of the trip. One survivor said he was like a ministering angel to us all, taking care of sick people, and he just sort of became the leader of this journey. So that's your trip 150 years ago from the East Coast to California. Today, you get on a plane, four hours, and the whole time it's, uh, uh, my seat doesn't go back, and uh, uh, the TV channels don't work, my TV doesn't work, I don't, get, I, I don't like any of these movies. Have you ever done that one? 
So my only point is, let's just be grateful. Life is all about perspective. It's all relative. And let's be grateful and appreciative. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. After the election, the press, the media, the coastal elites, the lamestream media could not fathom how someone could vote for Donald J. Trump. And you remember, go back to January, or excuse me, November, whatever it was, 7th or whatever. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't even know my country anymore. And what it's, uh, this is what it's like to wake up in Trump's America and stuff like that, right? So, Newspapers, and then uh, to their credit, decided to send reporters out to the rest of the country to find out what's going on west of the Hudson River and outside of the Beltway. So it's been uh, a couple months since they've done that, and we are starting to now see more articles uh, from city folks' first trip into the frontier lands like Wisconsin. And Texas, <laughs> out into the wilderness. And I like the effort, so I don't want to be super critical here. I like the effort, but the eh, first attempts of this, not quite right. The first story we shared was from the New York Times, and a reporter went to Texas and acted like he was on a safari. And he reported back to the people of New York that... People in Texas like trucks. That was the whole article. I'm not, that wasn't one paragraph in a bigger article. That was the article was about Texas people like trucks. No explanation, no insight, no depth, just, Hey, look at these people in Texas drive a lot of pickup trucks. Weird, right? There's your New York times article. So like, okay, I like the effort, but we kind of missed the mark on that one. Uh, now, Politico is going to take their first stab at it. Here, they wrote a nice long article. What to do, excuse me, what do you do if a red state moves to you? Hmm. What What do you do if a red state moves to you? Quick quick time out before I even tell you the, the punchline of this. Can you guys think of any place in the country where, okay, for instance, a lot of people from California moving to Texas. Okay. So you got people from a blue state moving to red Texas and people in Texas are ticked off about that. Stop trying to make Texas like California, right? Can you think of any scenario where people from a red state are moving to a blue state where people from the South are moving to the North or what? Like I can't think of any scenario. So, so what is this article? What do you do if a red state moves to you? Where are there people from a red state moving to a blue state? I don't even know where that is. So I'm intrigued. So it's a story about Pepin County, Wisconsin. Population 7,000, uh, very rural uh, county. What's odd about the headline is the article, as 
you would expect, is pretty much the opposite of the headline. The story is about a rural conservative area and a bunch of people from the cities moving in. Now, I know we talk a lot about the great divide in our country and that's city versus country. That's not just the great divide in our country. It's the great divide in all of human history, city folk, country folk. And in this article, they talk about people from the cities, but they're not just talking about generic cities. They're literally talking about the twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, which is about four hours away. So the story this is the story of city folk having enough of city life in very blue Minneapolis, St. Paul, moving to rural Wisconsin, which they think is, is democratic, but it's not. Because, okay, so Wisconsin, this is so fascinating to me, how people misinterpret this. Wisconsin's a blue state, right? They've had a Democratic governor, Democratic legislator. They've been voting for Democratic presidents for a while. But this happens to, like, Illinois is the best example. Illinois is a blue state, but it's not really a blue state. Look at the county map of Illinois. Hillary, in the last election, won two counties in Illinois, Chicago, Cook County, and the county right next to it. So Hillary just won Chicago. The entire, there's not a single other county in Illinois that went blue. Only those two. So it's not a blue state. It's a red state with a blue city in it. The rest is dark red. So it's the same with Wisconsin. So Wisconsin's red with some blue cities. That doesn't make it a blue state. So it's the same with Wisconsin here. So people from, from literally the cities, the Twin Cities, moved into Wisconsin thinking it was all Democratic and blue, but they moved to tiny rural Pepin County where it's country and red. So it wasn't, the article is, what do you do if a red state moves to you? What? That's not what happened. That, that's, that's, that's not, it doesn't make any sense. The real story is, from the perspective of the locals of Pepin County who have lived there forever, the real story is, what do you do when a bunch of city folk move to your small town? That's, that's the story. The story is not... It, it, they tried to write it from the perspective of progressives who moved to Wisconsin thinking it was a blue state, but oh my gosh, people voted for Trump here. What's happening to me? How did all these red people come to my... No. <laughs> the story is, how did you city folk move to rural Wisconsin thinking it was going to be... Blue when it wasn't. You see what I'm saying? See the difference there? So the article, and this makes sense because it's written by someone working at Politico. It's written from the, prog- the perspective of progressives, not from the perspective of the conservatives of Pepin County. So I'll give you an example of, of this divide. Uh, he, this is from the article. He talked about, a, uh, re- this is one of the residents, he talked about a recent squabble over the creation of an area ATV club. Some newcomers, the city folk, argued that the machines would make too much noise and lower their property values. There was, quote, opposition from a lot of liberals who live in fancy houses on the bluffs, he said. Some of them, he added, quote, rarely talk to the locals, even while trying to impose their ideas and sensibilities. The locals, Johnson said, understandably, quote, feel hurt by the people who look at them as rural rubes. So there's, we talk about the divide in our city, or excuse me, in our country, City versus country. And here that divide is in Pepin County. You got country folk who want to set up an ATV riding area right, for four-wheelers and all the rest. And then you got the fancy uh, liberals who live up in their big houses in the bluffs who don't want the noise. So, that, right, so there's your divide right there in Pepin County. A little microcosm of the divide nationwide. 
Here's another guy. He used to be the head of the local Democratic Party, but uh, became a Republican. He was he was the sheriff for 28 years. He said when the people came in, the city folk, and the things that they were trying to push on the rest of us, that's why I left the Democratic Party. I didn't want to deal with these people. I didn't want to be a part of what they were a part of. You're talking about people from the cities who are very progressive. I call them tree huggers, a bunch of tree huggers. And they referred to us, meaning the people who lived here and worked here all our lives, as a bunch of hicks. They just think they're a little bit better than everyone else and that we are not as smart. Two types of Democrats in Pepin County. You got people coming in from the cities. And you have descendants of farmers who had lived during the Depression who still credit the Democratic Party with seeing their family through the Depression. Isn't that wild? Right. So 80 years later, 90 years later, why are you a Democrat? Oh, the Democrats helped us through the Depression. My granddaddy told me so. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? I got that all the time when I lived in Tennessee. People would say, oh, I can't vote for Republican. My daddy would roll, roll in his grave. Like, what? This isn't your daddy's Republican part or a Democratic Party anymore. What do you mean you can't vote for a Republican because your daddy would be upset? What? What? So those are the two types of Democrats in Pepin County. Fascinating. That's the divide in our country. It's not black and white or whatever. All the divides we're told exist. It's not what it is. It's city versus country. I got to take a break here, but I'll give you one more example of of the smugness. Because that's what it is. It's a cultural superiority, right? You got people coming in from the city, moving into the country, telling the, uh, the country rubes how they need to be living and what they need to be doing. Give me an example. This is a, they, they interviewed a, a sculptor, right? An artist who moved in from the cities who can't understand why someone could vote for Trump. Quote, and it's a struggle. You have to continue to interact with these people. And you have to wonder, do you really have hate in your heart in this way? Really at the core, I, I, I didn't believe this about us. A word to the wise. If, if you want to understand how someone could vote for Trump, You have to lose the assumption that it must be because they have hate in their heart. You're never going to come to the right answer about why people would vote for Trump if that's the original assumption that you make about them. So I share that just uh, keep an eye out for these, these stories investigating what it's like living in the country and what these country folk are like. But I don't want to be too critical because at least they're trying to understand. So I got to give them a little bit of credit, I guess. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, I, I should have uh, played this clip uh, in the beginning of the last hour when uh, we talked about Trump hysteria. And if you missed that, please go back and listen to the podcast at uh, theblaze.com slash radio. And it was the second hour, and we talked about people who have total Trump hysteria. And we played a video of someone who you know thought Trump was going to 
start nuclear war and and put people in internment camps and all. and she worked through those fears and and at the end of this process it was about 25 minutes at the end of this process she realized that uh, it was all made up every fear she had was totally made up uh, i wish we could go through that process um with everyone who has trump hysteria including all the people at the women's march in austin texas i want to play this video it's just part of the video from stephen crowder he went to the women's march dressed as a woman and uh, not not a pretty one, uh, but no one batted his eye. And he asked people uh, why they're there. Uh, here's, here's what happened. Now, with Trump coming in and the threat of tyranny, as they put it, equal rights were certainly on the mind. So Stephanie and Janelle wanted to find out exactly which rights were most in peril. But as far as right. policy, what should we all be most concerned about with this march with Donald Trump and uh, this administration? To you. To you. To me. Like the rights. Specifically to your community or in general? You know, I think personally the in the imminent challenges that are kind of up, like projected or forecasted for the country as overall like. Oh my gosh. Well, can I, I think that the biggest concern for me is just this idea that this administration has a right to tell any of us what we can do with our bodies, right. what we can wear on our bodies, right. what we can uh, say about our bodies. Right. I guess I have multiple answers to that. Okay. And and that is our choice, not theirs, and it's not theirs to tell. What we can us wear is certainly do. not fashion advice from Mike Pence. <laughs> no. Yeah, it seems the only people who had anything close to an answer uh, were these two. They'll make it a felony to have an abortion? They yeah. make it a felony to They want to put people in prison for abortion? Yes. See, I didn't know about this. Yes. But that was pretty stupid. So to get clearer, more definitive answers, we decided to go straight to the top. Headlining speaker and de facto feminist leader of the Democratic Party, Wendy Davis. Thank you so much. You're such a, an inspiration. Oh, thank you. Thank you so What's much. What's your name? Stephanie. What rights do you think people should be most concerned about and how they can be active with this incoming administration? I don't think that we can single out a single one. Okay. Oh, skunked again. Incredible. Uh, again, please uh, go to theplays.com slash radio and check out the second hour of the show and you can learn how to talk with people who have that hysteria and they don't even know why. Uh, I want to mention this real quick before we get out of here. Uh, Trump's, so I think Trump's uh, picks for all the nominees for his cabin and everything, I think they're tremendous. Uh, I have no complaints. Can't think of anyone better for any of them, honestly. Uh, I think they're all fantastic. Uh, this one is, is excellent as well. Uh, General John Kelly for the chair of Homeland Security. Marine Corps general, former commander of Southern Command. The guy means business. Makes perfect sense why Donald Trump would choose him. Uh, general Eisenhower, when he became president, one of his first orders of business was to control the border and really control the border for the first time in our history. And he appointed as the, it was the uh, INS commissioner, which is the uh, immigration, it was the Immigration and Naturalization Service. It's like ICE today. He appointed Joseph May Swing, a general who fought in World War One and commanded the uh, 11th Airborne in the Philippines during World War Two. The guy, again, incredible, like epic war hero. And then after the war, General Eisenhower puts this guy in charge of the border. Same thing today. President Trump puts a Marine Corps general in charge of the border. 
And it's amazing. You know, Trump what was it on Wednesday, did his executive orders and gave a speech about shutting, shutting the border, not shutting the border down, but protecting the border and all the rest. And it's amazing. It's like, uh, he's actually following through on his campaign promises. We were watching his speech. I'm like, this is surreal. I, I, is this even allowed? Are we allowed to have presidents who actually follow through on their campaign promises? I'll tell you, I live here in San Diego. We have the busiest border checkpoint in the world, just 20 miles south of where I'm sitting right now. And it's a big problem. And we, we have a situation where we've talked to Border Patrol agents, and they tell stories of people will come across our border illegally, wave down the border agents, wave them down. Here I am, here I am, wave them down. And the border agents say they're like a Walmart welcoming crew. They, they pick up the, uh, the, the illegal immigrants. The illegal immigrants say they're seeking asylum or whatever. And then the border agents bring them to the trolley station on our side of the border and let them go. This is insane. This has got to stop. And I have a feeling General John Kelly, charge of Homeland Security, and President Donald Trump, in charge of the federal government, are going to have no time for that. Slater Radio on Twitter. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We can hang out all week, and we will see you next Saturday. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.